0: I get these blurbs sent to me where somebody has been identified or some case has been solved. A lot of them, I, it's not that I ignore them. It's just that I can kind of tell what's going to get popular really fast. And I try and not just play the, I try not record or bring to you and then record what is just, going to be all over the news anyways. But this one is interesting in, as far as true crime news goes. Uh, and you can find this anywhere because everybody was talking about it when it like uh, first broke in uh, March. This is a – so it's an identification, confirmation of like a murder victim, and then it has like this pretty unique element as, as far as I'm concerned. I, I read the post and people had something on it. ABC had something on it. So all of that sort of – plays into what is going on here. This is a New York city woman had been unidentified for a pretty long time. And so when I, okay, she's found in New York city. She's actually from Clifton, New Jersey, but uh, she's a murder victim. The murder happened in 1991. So we're getting to the point where like, we're able to see like some really old cases, but that are still in our lifetime are uh, getting some, some different types of resolution. And like there's like three stages to resolution to this case. So the first one was identifying the victim. And she's been identified. Um, the second stage is going to be trying to figure out who killed her. But there's that unique third element here. Basically, the press release says, murdered New York City woman, uh, finally identified after 30 years. Now, what was unique about her was uh, she had a scorpion tattoo. And she has come up in my my searches, but she was sort of outside of um, the time frame of anything I was ever looking for because of the date that it happened. So this is um, her body is found on September 20th of 1991. According to the Staten Island Advance in uh, November of 1991, a passerby found Belusco's body handcuffed and burned in the weeds off of a South Beach road just after dawn. September 20th 1991. Now they produced an image of her like a, a composite sort of sketch of her. and then they released uh, an image of her scorpion tattoo, which was it was on her right buttock. So they didn't really say a lot about like any other tattoos or anything. That was just what was prominent about it. Uh, but here's what they did say now. Uh, More than three decades after her death, authorities on Tuesday, which would have been March 21st, uh, 2023, authorities named an ill-fated woman found savagely beaten with a hammer, strangled, and set ablaze in Staten Island as Christine Belusco, who was 30, of Clifton, New Jersey. Uh, Staten Island District Attorney Michael McMahon said his office, along with the FBI and the NYPD, had used forensic genealogy techniques to identify Belusco. That's sort of good. I mean, shes it's a terrible murder. Um, but they have identified her. Uh, they put all kinds of pictures up. There, there was a very unique hammer at the scene. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but it's a, it's a massive um, uh, auto shop hammer.
1: Yeah, I saw it. Um, it actually has somebody's name uh, either inscribed or written or something on it.
0: Uh, the photo of it, it looks like it's uh, etched in there or scratched in there. It says Lloyd L. Um, it might also be wood burning, but L-O-Y-D-L. They'd hoped that that name might uh, lead them to it. They said on her body they found two uh, gold chains a ring watch. Do you remember those? Like it's a, it's a ring that has a little watch face on it.
1: I don't remember it. um, But I see what you're talking about.
0: They found some loose change and uh, a pack of Newport cigarettes. She had been struck 17 times in the back of the head with this 13 inch hammer. She was wearing a black dress uh, and she'd been burned. The NYPD is asking for anyone with information about this crime to call their tip line at 1 800 577 TIPS. Uh, that comes from James Essex, who is currently uh, the chief of detectives for the New York Police Department. Now, what's interesting about this case is around the same time that she would have been murdered, her daughter apparently disappeared. Now, I can't tell. When, because because of the way news works, I cannot tell like how long there had been a Charlie project for the two of them. But I, my computer tells me that I looked at Krista Belusco's case three times, and one of them is a very old time. It was in October of two thousand six. And then at the bottom of the Charlie Project page for Krista Belusco, uh, her daughter, it says that it has been updated one time since October twelfth, two thousand four. So I'm thinking that's when Charlie Project posted it. There was an update on the case added on August sixth of twenty twenty two, and then there's like some links on here to Nick Mick and to the Richmond County District Attorney's Office. So that's been within the last year or so that these updates have been added. Here's all it says on here. Krista Belusco, date of disappearance is given as September 20th, 1991. The place is Staten Island, New York. However, the last time anyone actually saw her was about a week prior to September 20th with her mother at the Mount Airy Lodge in Mount Pocono, Pennsylvania. She's never been heard from again and few details are available in her case. Uh, She's described as a two-year-old Caucasian female, uh, considered to be an endangered missing person. She'd be 33 years old today. Her date of birth is August 1st, 1989. A lot of this doesn't help us anymore. She would have been two foot four and 30 pounds.
1: Hopefully, I doubt very seriously. She's that size now.
0: It, it, right, right. Uh, she has brown hair and brown eyes. But they're looking so, for her.
1: So it's weird because okay, so we, you've got a situation where you've got an unidentified body. She went unidentified for. 32 years, is that right? 31 years. She was just identified, right?
0: It would be 32 years this year, but yeah, she was just, it's just been released. She was actually okay. identified end of last year, but it's not being It's being released.
1: Okay. And so um, there's no question that the little girl was reported missing, uh, the two year old, Chris, Krista, right? So there's Christine right. and Krista.
0: Yeah. Christine is mom. Krista is the daughter.
1: And so. Uh, did you say that you had seen, um, Chris, Christine? The reason I'm asking is because that's sort of relevant as to whether or not she was reported missing, right? I don't,
0: I am not. Okay. I don't remember Christine. I remember Krista.
1: Okay. And so, so this whole time, like Krista was in, uh, you said pretty far back, she's been reported as a missing child, um, I can't see where Christine was reported missing. Uh, that doesn't mean she wasn't. But if that is the case, that's interesting to me, right? Because I would have looked at a situation uh, like what you just read as her um, circumstances surrounding her uh, disappearance as her mom just took her, right? And yeah. didn't want to be around whoever. And, you know, people are allowed to do that. Uh it is really unfortunate. It sounds like she was pretty much, um, she died almost at the same time that this child was last seen, right?
0: Yeah, it's like the uh, the last appearance of the kid, and I think, you know, she's with mom in you know, the last time she's seen, is sometime around September 15th. But the the case file that I briefly pulled up for this since September 13th. So it's about a week before the body is found.
1: I wonder. She was savagely beaten with a hammer, strangled, and set ablaze. Yeah,
0: if, she set on fire.
1: I wonder if um, that hammer has uh, any DNA on it.
0: I don't know that. You know, the way they're asking about this, I think there's something there that they and you know, it's got a name inscribed on it. So I'm sure there's been some efforts to backtrack that. Cases like this. Okay, so the reason cases like this usually stand out to me is geographically they're a nightmare. You've got a woman from Clifton, New Jersey, last seen in Poconoth in Pennsylvania, found dead in Staten Island, New York. That right there is a lot of jurisdictions involved. Uh, locally, you've got at least three uh, you know, cities, and then you've got three counties, and then you've got three states. But then you throw in a kid and that makes it pretty wild. I'm hoping they have some DNA here. And that's why they're making this effort to try and, like, I, I think they're looking for something. Like, you don't hear a, about these cases just for nothing. And I think people know that when they, in this case, the big thing they're looking for is the daughter. But the second thing that they're looking for, uh, I'm guessing, is probably Lloyd or whoever uh, borrowed Lloyd's hammer.
1: Yeah. You know, obviously, whoever uh, is Krista's father would, you know, be relevant here. High on, on
0: the, right. the list, yeah. Well, somebody reported her missing It like, at least as of those dates I mentioned, she was missing. You know what I mean? Like A
1: two-year-old should have been reported missing, like, almost immediately by somebody. Now, the fact that her mom um, was dead, it that could vary, right? Um, yeah. Because you know, her mom couldn't report her missing. And as you know, the last time they were together, she wasn't missing, I assume. Right. Because um, that, that leads me to believe maybe the little girl was kidnapped Um, and you may be looking for one of those rare instances where a female is responsible, especially with the multiple ways um, she was killed. I think about that, and I think about how it was almost like, well, that didn't work. Let's try this other thing. That didn't work, right? Yeah. She was beaten with a hammer, and then she was strangled, and then she was set on fire. Now, that's—I mean—a man could absolutely do that, but that's really unorganized because I don't know for sure. Um, now, do you know if her body was dumped, or was that where it happened, where she was found?
0: I got the impression it was where it happened,
1: just a possibility somebody uh she could, it could be anybody really um if it was a guy though, and uh the motive wasn't like kidnapping the child um uh the baby is more than likely deceased as well. um I don't really see them ho- like if if the child isn't the motivation uh like kidnapping the kid. Um, isn't why the mom was killed, then they wouldn't have kept the baby alive. That's just collateral damage, I guess. But I think that this could be a situation, especially given the like vicious, brutal nature of how she was killed and she remained unidentified for so long. Um, especially with a scorpion tattoo. Yeah. Like, how does this happen?
0: I, I dig a little on these cases. But there's only so much you can do with them. I, I will say that this is my impression. Based on what I could find going through newspaper archives and law enforcement bulletin archives, I think they thought she left and she took the kid.
1: That makes sense. But somebody reported the kid missing.
0: Yeah, somebody definitely did. because So in 2004 and 2008, I found New Jersey references to both of them related to abandoned property. It wasn't like a missing persons flyer was out there. Um, I'm thinking that like somebody in the family went, where is this kit? And like, can we report her missing? It, it's a little, it's a little weird how that would have worked, but they both sort of disappear off the radar in about uh, 1990, 1989. Let me get my, Time correct. Um, and there, you know, there's other people with the same name that pop up.
1: Wait a second. You're saying they disappear off the radar? The baby was born in 1989, so she didn't have a lot of contact with anybody.
0: I'm just saying from 1989 to 2001, they don't hit a lot of records other than her birth. But what I'm saying is there are a Christine and a Krista that are not them in the Pennsylvania area. Who pop up quite a bit over the years
1: I don't uh, if the I don't think if the little girl's alive that she would still be going by that name
0: no that's not what I mean I'm sorry i'm not I'm not saying it well what I'm saying is family members looking for her might have seen names in newspapers that looked like them mm-hmm. and only reported it missing from the perspective of like we want to see that baby or we want you know or it could could have been the father it could have been the father's family and they were like we want to do something about this my point is the name pops up for christine the name pops up for Krista, but it's not them it's not the right ages it has nothing to do with them they would just see it in passing in the newspaper so it's not like like they might have thought they were just living off the radar sure
1: um and yeah i could see where a father would report his child missing but maybe not feel um like he's the right person to report the mom missing or whatever
0: right depending on his involvement i
1: mean well, they're not together or whatever right I mean, right I, that's, that's the other thing we should take into consideration here is it was in 1991 it's entirely possible they weren't interested in taking a police report for the mom but the child it would have been a different situation right
0: Yeah, it absolutely would. And like, so when I, when I dug into the child, I thought I would find her name. You know what I mean? Like, I thought I would see like, uh, I I'm referring to it more of a, like a missing custody matter might've been what was going on. I'm not saying it was that I'm saying like, that might've been how the family viewed it. Like dad and mom don't get along. Mom went poof. But I do see where like, you know, uh, in May of 2008, here's an example. They run these legal notices, and I don't think they do this anymore, where um, abandoned property, and like this is usually money-related, gets run in the newspaper by the state treasury. Uh, This literally says that it's a New Jersey unclaimed property fund, uh, May 6, 2008, in the Daily Record up in Morristown. Uh, in Morris County, New Jersey. Uh, their names are listed side by side. This is the only place on the internet. It has them both being at 22 Morris Avenue in Montville, New Jersey. It lists Krista and it lists Christine as having abandoned property. My point is other than that, you don't really see Krista anywhere. I thought so that that's was an odd.
1: account or something. Yeah. Yeah. Think yeah. That, this is that some that kind of bank like
0: account. Or, really old. Yeah. It really could be. But that's the only time I see their names together online. And the reason I say that is because this is one of the questions you ask me all the time, and I think you're right to ask it, is were they reported missing? And I think if the kid had been considered to be not with mom and seriously missing, I think I would find more evidence of that. I think nobody knew that Christine was dead.
1: Right. And I have to say... um and, and I don't know because I, I don't recall ever seeing her like in NamUs or anywhere, but I have to say, um, that a scorpion tattoo in a descriptive box for this unidentified body, um, and then a scorpion tattoo on a, um, missing person, I feel like that would have been caught, right? Um,
0: that's the main reason I bring it up particularly well th- so this is something I wanted to ask you and it's kind of an odd question um, I I don't know that people publicize what I will call intimate tattoos. That's true like so this tattoo is on her uh, her butt so when I when I point that out like, and if people don't know, like, when you have unidentified persons, like, forms or missing persons forms, one of the categories is what's known as distinctive physical features. I look a lot for distinctive physical features where, like, I, I'm just trying to see if I can mess something up. So I went on today because, of course, I did. And, and guess what I searched through name
1: Scorpion.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, so I went and I I, I searched for uh, just the word scorpion, not for scorpion tattoo. Mm-hmm. And I, I immediately got 16 unidentified persons cases
1: mm-hmm. in,
0: um, in NamUs. Only one woman, and she was from 1982. So then I went on the missing persons cases. Do mm-hmm. you ever do this? Do you ever get down yes. a rabbit hole? Okay. Okay. So when I go on to missing persons cases and I look up the word scorpion, Mm -hmm. circumstances change a little bit. I get 42 cases.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, that's out of 22,000. I mean, that's a lot.
0: I know. I just am pointing it out because I was a little fascinated by the idea.
1: You're right, though. I didn't really think about... Now, on the unidentified body, I don't even know if that body was a NamUs. I have no idea. Like, I know I've looked for tattoos, but I remember, like, flowers and cherries. I don't remember ever looking um, up a scorpion, but that doesn't mean that I didn't.
0: Well, I found an Oneida, New York woman who also had a scorpion tattoo on her left butt cheek. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. So it would have been the opposite cheek as uh, Christine, but I, I just found that fascinating that like, that's a thing that, and you know, I have known you can search for people's tattoos. I've known that like, but sometimes my mind doesn't like wrap around like what that could mean. In fact, I have a, a North Carolina case where the girl has, a, like, a big scorpion tattoo, like, on her back or shoulder. And that one was in there. And I was like, oh, wow. It made me remember so many things. When I started sor- searching these words, you know, I'm just looking for scorpion tattoos. It's interesting, right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I use it all the time for, you know, like, the the girl you mentioned from um, Oneida, New York, She was uh, she went missing after this body was found. Um, Right. Yeah. But like if you so if you whittle down the parameters in a perfect world. Right. Which we don't live in. But um, the idea is that, you know, you've got uh, Christine Belusco in the system with the description of her scorpion tattoo. It doesn't even have to say it's on her butt, really. It's just scorpion tattoo. Right. Then you get this unidentified body also in there with a scorpion tattoo right um and in a in a perfect world you know it's like instant reunification of the body and the identity based on like other things right i mean obviously dna is what really we want because that is a you know a, a, that's an infallible uh resolution right right yeah um and it it's just You know, I I don't know. I used to and I don't know that everybody thinks this way, but I used to think like, oh, there there'd be too many of those. Except just with this little demonstration here, just putting in Scorpion, like you see, there's really not that many of them, right? It's it doesn't become this like endless possibility situation if they're both in the system. Now what I found was, you know. It works because the majority of the time you're looking for something, it's the reason you're having to look is because it's not in the system. Right,
0: right. right.
1: And so, you know, I doubt she was ever reported missing. I don't know how seriously her disappearance was taken. It doesn't seem like anybody put, you know, two and two together. Um, I feel like it's tragic when you have a situation like this with someone being found basically tortured, murdered. And her un- identity goes unknown for so long. They have to think back, like, well, where was she last seen? So who, you know, who was she with? Like, uh, this whole case at this point has to be worked now that she's identified, right? And they have to work from the word go. And that's really hard to do all these years later.
0: Yeah, it's almost impossible in some ways I I think this is how I look at those. It's not that it's impossible. It is very difficult to find a starting point.
1: Well, and I think the DNA is, um, wait a minute. Did they, was it?
0: It's an ending point.
1: Was the DNA used? uh, Yeah, no,
0: they end up identifying her through, they say genetic genealogy, forensic genetic genealogy. That's how they identified her.
1: I think so many different cases. I, oh, yeah. I, I,
0: but that's what they said in the press conference. That's what the
1: okay, I see. Yeah. So they use uh they've used genetic genealogy that could potentially which I think they addressed, they said that, you know, they were using those techniques to see if there's any sign of um the daughter because if she had children or she's had her DNA done or there's a wide variety of things that, um, forensic, uh, genetic genealogy can show like trying to find somebody. Right. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so I, I really do think though that, like based on the whole situation, I, I think the little girl was probably kidnapped and she probably, she could possibly be alive under a new identity. It's really hard to imagine though. And the only reason I say it is because I've, I've heard these stories and most of the time it's not kidnapping children. It's like taking a baby like out of a pregnant woman. Right. It's hard to imagine somebody like that wants to have a baby to raise being so uh, vicious, vicious
0: and violent. Yeah.
1: Towards the parent. But You know, I I just, I I hate it that um, it's gone so long. I feel like it's ridiculous that she wasn't identified earlier, but at least she is now.
0: Yeah, no, she's identified. uh, The hunt is on for Krista, which I really hope that they um, find her. She's uh, 33 today. She's, you know, she's an adult, probably has her own family. But I do hope that somehow... um, I hope she's alive out there, and she gets the surprise of her life that she has this whole whole other family that um, maybe she doesn't know about. And I hope it's all a good thing for her. I, I so we're transitioning between serial killers on our side. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about Chris or Christine right now?
1: Just that I feel like finding the killer goes hand in hand with finding the daughter and. One, I did to
0: agree with you. Yeah.
1: One will lead to the other, inevitably, one way or the other, right? Because if you find out, you know, who the killer is, which, you know, Lloyd L. may not have done it, but he might have an idea of who took his hammer or where the last place he saw that hammer was. If you find out, you know, who had the hammer and who used it. I mean, that's how leads work, right? And so eventually, you know, they'll, one will lead to the other. Um, I do think that Lloyd L should be (laughs) considered. And Lloyd L probably worked in an automotive repair shop in uh, around the 90s sometime, right? In that area, I would imagine. Actually, there's quite a quite a ways because she was seen in Pennsylvania. She was from New Jersey and she was found in New York. Right.
0: Yeah. There's a, that's what I'm saying. The jurisdictions alone make this like an interesting targeted area.
1: True. I mean, it really does. Uh, the The hammer is pretty specific there. They have a picture um, linked in that, in the New York post article.
0: Yeah, they do. And it, uh, to be quite honest, it's a pretty formidable uh, hammer. I, I look at those hammers and the way that, that I don't know for sure that this is what it is, but um, I think of that as an auto body hammer, like a peen finishing hammer is what I picture. And on one side there's like a, a chisel end, and on the other side there's like a, a round face, uh, and it has a heavy wood handle. Uh, but it's a, it's a formidable hammer. It's not a cheap like if you went and bought that today, like even sort of the knockoff version of that would probably cost you a couple bucks. Um, so sure.
1: And the wood, I would assume now granted touch DNA is going to pick up a lot of irrelevant things, but the wood would actually have held in some of that DNA. Right. I, I think. And as far as getting, cause your, your thing, whoever used it had to, you know, put their hands on it. And I don't know how well it was preserved. It said it was found under her dress. So the perpetrator left it behind
0: Right. I went digging on hammer attacks because I get into these modes where I'm like looking for different hammer things. I agree with you. I think the perpetrator would have let DNA, but I thought if we could find other hammer attacks. And I found the the weirdest, like unrelated case out in, this is from North Park in San Diego. Uh, and this is from 2017 in January. Uh, I think CBS 8 carried it and that's where I first found it. but. Uh, It was a North Park auto repair shop employee attacked with hammer. And it said the San Diego police were seeking a man who struck an employee at a North Park Park auto repair shop in the head with a hammer 13 times in an unprovoked attack, leaving him in critical but stable uh, condition. Uh, They had surveillance of the whole thing. So uh, this is at uh, Jack's muffler service on uh, University Avenue in San Diego. And... Uh, it's, a, it's a, a guy there named Henry Rader. He was eating alone in the service bay. It's around eight o'clock on a Sunday night. And this guy pulls, this guy walks in, pulls out a hammer and he just starts striking him. He hits him in the head seven times. The guy hits the floor. And then he like the suspect wanders around. He like looks in the office. He looks back through all the bay. And then he comes back to Henry Rader. Who's laying on the ground at this point, And he hits him six more times while he's on the ground. So he hits this guy 13 times, and then he just walks out, keeps going. He exits the the bay on the video, but he drops the hammer in his backpack and keeps going. A passerby spots Henry about 10 minutes later, and he calls 911. And uh, paramedics come to the scene. It's all on video. I, it was fascinating to me. But the assailant was a this white guy. I don't know. He looks like he's in his late 20s, early 30s. Normal height and weight, like pretty, you know, five, nine to six foot somewhere. Totally normal dude walks in and then beats this guy. That was so. Did he pick the
1: hammer up?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He like walks in and like, like, uh, he like picks it up. I have never seen anything like that. When something like that happens and it like piques my interest, I went just to make sure that like something had been done with it. So, first of all, it raised like tons of money. I think the guy is okay. And they arrested a suspect in in this case. Um, the guy was only, I think, 30 years old. So, like, he's was not. he killed? No, no, he's not killed. Um, uh, it did say that, like, he had a, a long recovery. I don't know if he has died since then, because this is six years ago that this happened. But uh, they arrested a guy named Lewis Cederholm, and he ended up, like, having to go. For I think he went for attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and something that San Diego has called General Mayhem. If you look up Henry Raider attack video, and I'm I'm warning you now, it's kind of graphic. It is, it's definitely the dude Louis Cederholm. But when he walks in, like he is just like focused on kind of knock the guy in the head. Uh I don't I don't know what happened to him. I I tried to look up uh the outcome of of Lewis uh, Cederholm's case. I didn't see it, but I I saw where he was going for like a competency hearing, like maybe something was wrong with him. Um, Well, I
1: would say that that is, uh, um, you know, old news that something's wrong with him because if there wasn't anything wrong with him, he wouldn't just randomly walk in somewhere and pick up a hammer. Now, my question would be, was it legitimately unprovoked? Like, did they legitimately not have some sort of beef with one another or something? Now, that's just any case that I saw like that. I would wonder that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not um, It's not particular to this case. Now, um, I, I, I have no idea, but it, it seems like um, somebody that uh, walks in, out, because he drove there. Is that right? You said he drove there?
0: I... He walked uh, there. I I can't tell. Like I can't. Okay. I don't see anything about a car. I see him stepping out, stepping into the bay. And the first time you see him, he kind of like I don't know how to explain it. It's a surveillance camera from above a car bay, and like Henry's on the left. He's sort of sitting there having a sandwich and look. There's a car raised in it, I think. And then you see Lewis's face in the doorway of the bay, and he just walks in and. He hits Henry.
1: Like, Is there any, any sort of conversation?
0: No, no, it's nothing. Like it's like almost like a zombie attack.
1: So if you know, it it could also be that um, while not personal, he had some sort of issue with the place. right?
0: Yeah. I said car, um, but it's a motorcycle in the bay. It's just clarify in case people look it up and think I'm crazy.
1: Um, and so you know, wh- lacking some sort of um, which would make the motive revenge. Basically, he's yeah. getting back against you know being overcharged or you know uh one of the mechanics having an affair with his wife I don't know there's a lot of things that could come into play there where it could be like an actually you know somewhat normal motivated crime however it's it's redirected because um you know, he associated the place with it instead of the correct person. And so, you know, all that I would have to take into consideration. It is not impossible, however, so incredibly um, not likely for something like this to occur, right? Because for him to come in without a weapon to begin with, um, that's a really strange thing uh, if you're going to – uh physically if you go somewhere specifically because um you're wanting to uh wreak vengeance to on somebody you're going to take your weapon with you right it is entirely possible this guy you know was looking for cash or looking for you know whatever he could get out of there uh i think somebody on drugs could potentially beat someone with a hammer for no reason, no good reason, um, looking for money, because you said he wandered around, right? Yeah. So that would be, you know, that kind of motive. That's interesting, though. I'd like to know, like, what the reasoning was. But typically, when you've got crimes like that on video, you don't get a whole lot of information. They plead out, and they end up in jail, you know, and that's it. Well,
0: I never saw a sentence for him, and I thought I would look him up a little more before we got on the episode, and that I didn't. Um, but I, I want to mention one thing, and then I want to talk to you about a, an aspect of a case, not the whole case. Um, did you did you see where Harvey the Hammer died? Yeah, I did. So we talked about him earlier this year, and that's that's Harvey Carnahan or Carnan Carrignan. I don't know how you say his last name.
1: Yeah, you, we, you, you got it the last time.
0: Okay, so we talked about him earlier this year. He's mentioned in a number of books, including Anne Rules, The One Ad Killer, uh, The Serial Killers Documentary. He talks about him in one of the episodes. Um, he's in the Talking with Serial Killers book and he's in the Alcatraz Last Survivors book if you wanted to read more about him than what I presented when I was talking about him. Um he was known as uh Harvey the Hammer. But he passed away on March 6, thousand twenty-three, uh finally. And how old was he? When he died, he was ninety five years old. He had been imprisoned um I want to say since 1974 that he'd been in there the whole time. So he spent, you know, essentially my entire adult life in prison. Uh, no, and your he,
1: entire life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. I, he, he spent my entire life in prison and he was one of those guys that he had a bunch of the weird things going on related to the homicidal triad um, he had been abused, uh, a lot going on with him, but anyways, uh, he passed away, uh, in, he never got out of, uh, Faribault, which is the Minnesota, uh, correctional facility, state prison. I am shocked that he lived that long in prison. That's the reason I was bringing him up.
1: I mean, if anything, <laughs> I actually
0: <laughs> thought, so when we were covering him, <laughs> I'd seen he was alive, seen he was alive, but there were like some records I couldn't find on him. I guess they stopped worrying about them after a certain age, like keeping the records like updated. I,
1: I saw that he had dementia.
0: But what I'm saying is like, so he's sort of an unknown serial killer.
1: You right? know what I mean? Yeah, that's good. Um That's so, why we covered him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So
0: sometimes when they're unknown, like the news doesn't really like talk about them at all. And then suddenly – his death was announced and I was like, well, and then I went back and looked at the the records I'd been looking at, which were like court records and uh, like uh, inmate records. And they were all updated at one time that he was deceased. And I was like, well, I guess he really was alive. Cause I, I was almost like, can this guy actually be 95 and in prison for that long? Cause that's, you're talking almost 50 years in prison.
1: Why He's would been- you even hold on? Like I, that, Blows my mind.
0: Well, I I don't know why he held on. I just know that he did, and I found it fascinating that he lived that long. Uh, I did see an updated photo of him. Did you see it? it looked a little like Santa Claus. I did. Yeah. I mean,
1: um, it's a I, kind I, of weird looking Santa, but yeah.
0: Well, like yeah, I mean, definitely weird looking. But he had like a beard, and he had it like shaved down the middle. Like I don't know how to explain it, but like giant. Almost like mutton chops, and then a, a goatee that had too big of a mustache. I don't know. I say Santa Claus, but it's probably more like some other personality. Uh, I don't know how to describe what he wanted, but uh, what he looked like. But he is now dead. Uh, the one ad uh, murderer is dead. So since he's a he's pretty unknown. We've gotten through this hammer stuff. We talked about Kristen and Christine. I had one more thing I wanted to talk about, and it's going to take a minute, but. I still wanted to do it if that's okay with you, because I saw something on this. What I saw was like a movie that I guess just came out. I'm always interested in like historical crime dramas that tell a slightly new angle on something. So this one popped up on I guess like Hulu or something. So I was I had some time to like sit down and go through some true crime stuff recently and watch some documentaries and some movies like. It's been a busy spring so far, so I haven't done a lot of that. And I watched the Boston Strangler film um, with Kira Knightley. Did you see
1: this? I did.
0: Okay, so I am just going to throw out there that I don't know a lot about the Boston Strangler case. I think I know a lot about the Boston Strangler case. Does that make sense?
1: I have a tendency to uh, sort of agree with that. I feel like I know less now that I watched that movie.
0: <laughs> okay, so, okay. So what's interesting is, all right, in 1968, there is another movie that came out, and it was not like a a small feat. The Boston Strangler. It was a 1968 American biopic or biographical crime picture. It's based on a book by a guy named Gerald Frank, who was an American writer and a ghost writer. It's directed by Richard Fleischer, but it stars uh, Tony Curtis and and Henry Fada, who were huge. Um, It also had uh, George Kennedy, uh, Murray Hamilton, and Sally Kellerman. These are really big actors that were in this movie. And that's a pretty run I've seen that one. It's a pretty run of the mill movie where a true crime author, in, in this case, it's you know, Gerald Frank, who like if you ever look up his books, like he has a lot of books that I think people would be interested in. He has like two or three that are pretty interesting and, and related to crime. But he wrote the book on the Boston Strangler. However, according to this movie, it was not a very good book on the Boston Strangler. It, it was, it was fictionalized and it was sort of based on mainstream narratives with some research, which is fine. I, I totally understand that like that happens. This new movie has a completely different take on it, which I found interesting. So that, so first of all, it, you know, it's very much a, a woman in journalism movie and it's talking about a couple of, uh, pretty amazing crime journalists, um, including Loretta McLaughlin from, she passed away a couple years ago, but uh, she covered the Strangler murders when they happened in 1962. For those of you who know nothing about the Boston Strangler murder murders, I would say this is an interesting movie to check out. Okay. For those of you who do, I apologize. I'm going to give the, the, uh, Cliff Notes version of the Boston Strangler case so that Meg and I can talk about this. The Boston Strangler is the name given to a person thought to have murdered 13 women in the greater Boston area from 1962 to about 1964. Those 13 women, their deaths is attributed to a man named Albert DeSalvo. Technically, Albert DeSalvo gave a confession, and then details of his case were revealed in court during a separate case. And from what I can tell, there's DNA evidence that links him to a 19-year-old girl named Mary Sullivan, who is considered to be the last victim of the Boston Strangler. In the years following DeSalvo confessing and a lot of detail uh, that he revealed being questioned, various parties started investigating the crimes and they suggested that these murders, which at the time had the nickname the stocking murders or the silk stocking murders, had been committed by more than one person. And that's the movie's focus. But here's the deal between June 14, 1962, and January 4th, 1964, 13 women who lived alone or were single between the ages of 19 and 85, were murdered. Most of them were sexually assaulted. They were strangled in their apartments. Police at the time believed that one man was the perpetrator. There was no sign of forced entry into their homes. So they assumed that the women were letting their assailants in, either because they believed him to be some kind of service guy or working for their apartment maintenance or being a delivery man. This case got a massive amount of publicity after the first couple of murders, but it still went on. The attacks continued, I guess is is a better way to phrase that. There were several cities where these murders were occurring, including Boston, and it complicated like what we're talking about with the first case today to jurisdictional problem. So the Massachusetts Attorney General, a guy named Edward Brooke at the time, he was trying to coordinate the various police forces to get some kind of hold on this case. Now, they, they did something interesting with this case, and that is that they used a psychic, a guy named Peter Herkos. And Peter Herkos was a, practicer of, a practitioner of ESP. Allegedly, he was one of the people who decided it was one person. I'm not going to go into any of that right now. But he provided a very detailed account of someone, and it was the wrong guy. The police themselves, like the individual detectives in these different jurisdictions, they weren't convinced that, the, that it was the actions of one person. But the public was led to believe that, mainly by the media and by some politicians. Here are the victims. Anna Sizers was 55. She's thought to be the first victim on June 14, 1962, and she's in Boston. Then back-to-back back on June 28th, 1962 and June 30th, 1962, we have two women on the same street, Mary Mullen, 85, and Nina Nichols, 68. They both lived on Commonwealth Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. Then June 30th of 1962, same day, in Lynn, Massachusetts, we have Helen Blake, who was 65. Then we have Ida Erga, who was 75, on August 19th, 1962 on Grove Street in Boston. We have Jane Sullivan. She was 67 on August 21st, 1962 on Columbia Road in Boston. Sophie Clark is 20 years old. So that's a whole departure from all of this. Uh, December 5th, 1962 on Huntington Avenue in Boston. But then we have Patricia Bissett, who is 23 years old, December 31st on New Year's Eve, 1962 on Park Drive in Boston. Mary Brown is the next victim. Um, she was 69 years old and her death took place on March 6, 1963, on Park Street in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And then we have Beverly Salmon, who is 23 years old, on May 6, 1963. Her death took place on University Road in Cambridge. Um, so then we have Evelyn Corbin. She's 57. And she's in Salem, Massachusetts on Lafayette Street when she dies on September 8th of 1963. Then we have 23-year-old Joanne Graff in Lawrence again on Essex Street on November 23rd, 1963. And then Mary Sullivan is considered to be the last victim. She was 19 and she died on January 4th, 1964, but she's on Charles Street in Boston. So there's a geographic thing going on here that's kind of interesting. Have you looked at these cases just kind of generally or?
1: I have, yeah. I've looked at them generally.
0: So I get real interested when I start looking. I mean, these are not, these places are not miles and miles and miles apart, by the way.
1: No, yeah, they're not.
0: But they're different pieces of the Boston area. What ends up happening here? is on October 27th of 1964, a man goes into a young woman's home and he's posing as a police detective. He ties the victim to her bed and he sexually assaults her. And then he leaves. He says, I'm sorry. And he bails. Now the woman's able to get a pretty good look at him. And she gives a description to the police. They identify this guy as Albert DeSalvo. Now, his photo gets published, and many women identify him as having a at them. On October 27th, earlier in the day, DeSalvo had posed as a motorist that was having some car trouble, and he tried to get into a home in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. The homeowner is a guy named Richard Sprouls, who will one day be the police chief of Brockton. He got suspicious about what was going on with DeSalvo and he fired a shotgun at him. They bring him in, and he's not originally on the radar of the police in any of these areas, including Boston, for these stranglings. But he gets in with an inmate there named George Nasser, who's really his only claim to fame is that he was being defended by F. Lee Bailey. So Effley Bailey. Has been a thorn in the side of the American criminal justice system for a very, very long time, name wise. And he is representing George Nasser here. But this is now, now, Effley Bailey has passed away at this point in time, like where we all live. But his uh, career spanned so many different uh, major criminal cases. The big one would have been before this, um, it would have been F. Lee Bailey arguing in 19 – actually, it would have been after this. In the 19, so in time, in the 1960s, Bailey is the one who argues to the Supreme Court about Sam Shepard's case. And Sam Shepard is uh, the man who the fugitive movie and series uh, are, are based on. When we meet him in this story, he's representing George Nasser for some what I would call uh, robbery murders um, in and around Boston. And it's not the same type crimes as a strangler. So I don't want to give the impression that, that that's what I'm thinking of with him. Uh, and if I understand what they were saying in this movie, I think Nasser is still alive. And he has had appeals going through like the 2000s. But the idea is that Nasser talks to F. Lee Bailey and he says, look, there's this guy in here, Albert DeSalvo, and he's telling me that he's committed these crimes. Which crimes he's referencing aren't really clear. In real life, in the movie, they make it pretty clear they think that he's talking about the Boston Strangler killings. Now, the impression they give in the movie is that DeSalvo was known as the Green Man and the Measuring Man. So, this is a series of rapes where the Measuring Man would come in and make his way into people's homes and ask them if they'd ever considered modeling. And then he would tell them he needed to take their measurements, but he didn't have a measuring tape. He would just use his hands. The green man referenced a work shirt and pants or coveralls that looked like a utilities or maintenance worker's uniform. That could have been what DeSalvo had confessed to Nasser. Nasser is able to coach DeSalvo through a lot of details. Now, Flee Bailey has a book called The Defense Never Rest, and he states that DeSalvo got a, some details right that were not public information. He also got some stuff wrong. Now, The way that they tell, they tell a couple of different stories about how he might have come about this information. In the movie, it's presented that largely the information itself comes from the police and it comes from George Nasser and some other inmates. I don't know, I don't believe that the names they're using in the movie are the real inmates, so I'm not going to talk about them here. But for most of like DeSalvo's world, he is not well. And he spends his time in what at the time would have been state mental institutions, or I think at one point he's in Bridgewater State Hospital. The thing about mental institutions and hospitals is he's able to slip out a little bit. He has an escape on his record. He he ends up turning himself back in after he tries to dis, uh, disguise himself as a a, a naval uh, petty officer or an uh, an enlisted. Um, he ends up being transferred into Walpole State Prison. He's there for about uh six years in Walpole, and then he gets stabbed to death. Now, okay, does that cover enough that like we can talk about the Boston Strangler, you think?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think so. All
0: right, so with with the the story that's going on in this in this movie. They're following the two journalists who sort of break the case. And from that perspective alone, in my opinion, the movie is worth a watch. Now, what they do that's interesting is they rest the movie on the idea that DeSalvo was going to tell one of them what had really happened with the Boston Strangler murders and the impression they give is, is right before his death, he was going to sort of turn on a couple of people that were involved in them. Now there have been doubts over the years that there was a serial killer involved at all in the Boston Strangler murders. And that's something that not with specifically with the Boston Strangler, but generally speaking, you and I frequently get into a, like, is this myth or, you know, is this a bunch of individual crimes or is this really a serial killer? That's like, One of our hallmarks of our conversations, I would say. Wouldn't you?
1: Yes, I would. Um, I think that uh, one of the very first things that you have to take into consideration with any sort of media on any serial killers, victims ever, is like, is this really a serial killer? Are these victims actually the victims of the same killer? Because um, a lot of times... Uh, you know, it is possible there's a serial killer happening, um, but it's also possible that, you know, not every single one of the murders is related to it.
0: Yeah, and that's that's sort of where I'm I'm coming from with this. Um, I have a lot of respect for Robert Wrestler and John Douglas. They uh, give some commentary along the way uh, in sort of the sprawling media. I mean, there are multiple movies about the Boston Strangler. Um, lots of books. You can... He's what I call lore at this point. And largely, I think he's a legend in terms of, uh, you know, do I believe that the Boston Strangler was one person? Uh, the answer is no. I think it was two distinct people, at least, maybe more. Um, and I'll say this. The, the main reason I think that is because I I think someone was killing young women and I think someone was killing older women. It
1: could um, have been just to throw you off, though.
0: It could have been. It absolutely could have been. At the time of the confession uh, that DeSalvo gives, which is, you know, largely off the record the way that uh, it it rolls out, is kind of dubious.
1: And to me, like, why? Why if there's not an issue? Why is it like that? This is a very serious set of circumstances. And, um, you know, without that questionable behavior, right? Like, if it was just straight up, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, what difference does it make to law enforcement? And, you know, I always ask myself that, like, you know, what was the point of it being this thing that could be questioned later?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think ultimately they found problems that they tried to lead him through. And, you know, I think Albert DeSalvo screwed up enough of it that they couldn't, they didn't have anything to use to lock it all down and make it public. Cause and all—I mean, anytime that happens, um, I get super dubious of the police efforts. And it's not that I think the police are corrupt, you know. I think the police are simply trying to solve a thing, and they've decided this is this is it. And even even though they believe it's to salvo, they don't have the exact proof, so they're just going to make it
1: fit. Um, right, and that's doing everybody a disservice. Um, in the movie, it's portrayed as. You know, one of the journalists has a moment where she realizes um, uh, during the interrogation, uh, she's listening to it. And she's like, oh, they're showing him the crime scene photo. Because you can tell by the way um, he's saying, like, this room here was, you know, the bedroom or whatever it was, he said. But so you can tell like he's pointing it out to them and, you know, you don't show somebody that's confessing a crime scene photo.
0: Yeah. Generally speaking, when the confession is going on, you know, you get it from them first and then if you're shoring up details, you might show them some layouts or have them draw layouts. Frequently, you you know, you'll see them drawing maps or, or like uh, they'll get a map and they'll, they'll mark off some spots where something occurred uh, if they're capable of doing that, sometimes people just aren't able to do that. Uh, in the course of the movie, uh, like you said, uh, there are a number of things that come into question. They do use uh, Doctor Roby; he's one of the the people that, that questioned a number of things about um, the Boston Strangler. So, the, the factors that created doubt that that the Boston Strangler is a strangler or even a serial killer or whatever. Um, There was the type of victim, the methodology, and this is clouded by the idea of how profiling started a few years after this would have come about. Um, The women were from a variety of age and uh, racial makeups, Um, and they were murdered using a couple of different methods along the way. Uh, Ames Roby, he was a medical director of Bridgewater State Hospital, and he insisted to anyone that would listen at the time that Albert Salvo was not the Boston Strangler he said that his prisoner was a a clever, smooth, compulsive confessor who desperately needed to be recognized. In other words, he was an attention seeker. Um, His opinion was shared by several of the district attorneys involved at the time uh, and a couple of inmates who, in the course of this movie, you see like sort of coaching DeSalvo about details. Uh Bailey believed that his client was a the killer. Um, there's a lot of stuff that happens when you put a task force together, which I think lends me to believe DeSalvo might have been a murderer, but he was not the Boston Strangler. And I don't believe the Boston Strangler existed. Um, I think
1: there were several Boston Stranglers. Yeah, with a better investigation, instead of like this like mayhem panic, right? Because that's what ends up happening. I mean, at at least according to you know this fictionalized account of it that's given in the movie. I mean, people, women who lived alone were horrified, Um, and when mayhem sets in. Even the investigators aren't thinking completely clearly, right? No, it's um, it's a, it's a it's
0: literally a room where the walls are all coming in on you. It's just the public are the walls.
1: Right. And as soon as you have the killer in, you know, well, I guess some mental hospital, um, you know, that resolves itself a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, with each case – I I really don't think um so the ruse was uh because they were finding that all these women had let whoever did this to them in their house, right? Or in their apartment, or you know, they were letting them in. They they there was no forced entry, right? Um and there was, you know, oh you uh you're beautiful, you could be a model, right? Or, like, I'm the super and I need to do something and so I need to measure, right? My impression was that it was the model for the young girls and it was the measuring thing for the older women.
0: Well, the me- uh, the measuring man was the model guy. The older women, I think he did the maintenance ruse.
1: Well, it- I'm here
0: to fix your pipes. The measuring yeah, that- man literally was measuring their... Breast and oh, the I'm
1: sorry. I've I messed it up. I see what you're saying. I I just said measuring instead of maintenance. Okay, right, right. Um, and I was like, well, they're saying like it's one and the same, basically, is my point, and I think your point too. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like entirely possible that it wasn't one and the same. <laughs> um, I also think that um, it's entirely possible that um. It, the element that, like, none of these women were, well, and correct me if I'm wrong, there there wasn't any forced entry, right?
0: Not that, it doesn't look like that in in most of these 13 murders, uh, and there are more than just these 13, but the 13 are the ones they think are all related. There's, there seemed to be, like, a coaxing going on where the women let the man in.
1: Okay, and so I just want to point out, you know, you also let in people you know, right? right? And it's actually way more likely that just statistically speaking, it's way more likely that someone you know that's close to you would have a motive for killing you over the possibility of you being killed by a serial killer, right? I mean, it it's the odds are astronomical. Um but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, journalist, uh, I did appreciate the perspective. Um, you've got a situation where you've got two women who everybody thinks they should be like staying at home as opposed to having careers. Um, you know, so they're constantly getting put down. Uh, they're trying to sort of make um, you know, and a, they're trying to. Fight their way through and break the glass ceiling, right? Because this is yeah. a long time ago.
0: I think they did a really good job of that, by the way. They didn't go with a really overbearing arch there. They just showed how hard the the arc was for them to, you know, sort of do their thing.
1: Right, and they did. You know, they were journalists, and they did a good job. And you know, it was people like that doing things like that in the '60s that led to like us women now not having to do it as much but it's still not balanced however i also realize um that while you know any sort of journalist they're basically a storyteller right
0: absolutely 100 percent.
1: and you know you've got to string facts together and just because you you know uh, i'm not saying that they did anything like you know fake news or anything like that but like you're telling an interpretation of facts and you've got to make it interesting. And while, you know, it is a very intriguing, interesting story. um, It is entirely possible that those same exact facts add up to not a serial killer.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things you and I do sort of constantly, I will say we're an interesting company here. Uh, I want to throw this out there because, all right, this is one of those things where, I'm going to contradict myself contradicting myself Um, because I have a lot of problems with profiling and I've expressed that uh, I think recently in terms of like the sequence of, of, of how these will release. If not, I apologize in the future. I'm going to have a problem with profiling. Um, But uh, when it came to not just the reporters observing things, the professionals or the, sort of austere professionals of the time who would later comment on this case. They had questions that were very similar to the reporters, but different. Uh, Robert Ressler said, "Uh, you're putting together so many different patterns regarding the Boston Strangler murders that it's inconceivable behaviorally that all of these could fit one individual. John Douglas flat out said he didn't believe that Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. He, uh, in the cases that haunt us, he actually said, that uh, DeSalvo had not yet graduated. He was a power assurance motivated rapist who was an attention sinker. He said that that type of rapist is unlikely to kill in the manner of the Boston Strangler. But and what they that, would do is they would want the attention and the credit for the crime.
1: Well, right. And, uh, but so he did have a DNA link to one of the.
0: Yes. Yeah. So Elaine Sharp in 2000. Um, she's mentioned in the movie, but she becomes a footnote, which is not fair to her because she did a uh, a lot of work. So she was an attorney, but she was also a print reporter. She took up the cause of the DeSalvo family, and she also worked with the family of Mary Sullivan, who I mentioned. She was a 19-year-old girl who was the youngest of the victims and the last victim. Um, and she was at Charles street in Boston on January 4th of 1964. So what, so what, um, what they did with the Sullivan case was they called her the final victim because the legend needed an ending. I will tell you now there are other matching victims. She's just the last one in all the mainstream media narrative. And what you'll discover is that all of the journalists who were doing such fine work up and through 1964 were put on bigger and better cases because of the Boston Strangler case. It's not that they did anything wrong. They just moved on after the 13 murders. So with Elaine Sharp, she got a media campaign together to try and clear DeSalvo's name. But then she went back and organized the exhumations of Barry Sullivan's body and Albert DeSalvo's bodies. She put through a bunch of different lawsuits to obtain information and trace evidence from the government. And, you know, a lot of documentary media has been produced off of her work. She was trying to explain the facts to the public. Notably, she was trying to explain inconsistencies between what DeSalvo said and what was actually going on at the crime scene. For example, she had observed that contrary to DeSalvo's confession to Mary's murder, that the woman was found to not have any semen in her vagina. And she had been strangled by a ligature instead of manually. Like, so not with her hand, not with his hands, but with a, a rope or other item. Um, and even Michael Baden, um, which I don't know if anybody just knows that name, because we're kind of getting to an era where he used to be really like high profile. Um, he was the forensic pathologist that was featured on HBO's autopsy, which was a great show long time ago. I don't know if it's still around or not. Um, even Michael Baden chimed in when Sharp uh, was making these efforts. And he noted that DeSalvo got the time of death wrong. This was a very, uh, uh, common inconsistency that's pointed out by, by different people. Um, Susan Kelly is among them. She wrote the book, the Boston Stranglers in 1996, uh, from the files of the Strangler Bureau or the task force. And she ar- argues that multiple people were at work. Um, unfortunately, uh, even though Elaine Sharp did all of this on July 11th, 2013, the Boston police department announced that they had found DNA evidence that linked DeSalvo to the murder of Mary Sullivan. So DNA found at the scene was a near certain match to why DNA taken from a nephew of DeSalvo, which is passed through the direct male lines with little change. You've talked about it before. Um, typically it's used to link males to a common uh, paternal ancestor, like on the dad's side. Uh, and a court did order, the exhumation of DeSalvo's corpse at that time to test his DNA directly. And on July 19, 2013, Suffolk County District Attorney uh, Dan Conley, uh, the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Martha Coakley, and the Boston Police Commissioners, a guy named Ed Davis, they announced that DNA test results proved that DeSalvo was the source of the seminal fluid Recovered at the scene of Sullivan's 1964
1: murder. Even though they had said earlier that there was no assault?
0: Well, okay. So they don't do a good job explaining this in the movie or any of the documentaries. I did go digging. This is what is said His semen is not in her. Semen was found at the scene, allegedly. It's a very convoluted explanation that they give. And I don't know how I feel about all of that. So, all right, I don't believe in conspiracy theories in general. I think that conspiracy theories are based on granules of truth that get twisted.
1: I think conspiracy um, theories are largely uh, cobbled together explanations of just sort of -of run-of-the-mill, normal, everyday incompetence.
0: I would agree with that.
1: Because you've got to explain it. Once the questions start, you know, there has to be an explanation. I don't know. I didn't do the right thing. I did the wrong thing. They're never taken as an explanation, right? They just aren't accepted. And so you've got to come up with something, right? Or somebody, and I'm not, I'm using like the royal you as in, like, you know, It has to be once a story, which this is a prime example. I mean, the Boston Strangler, you know, when you say that, like most people are going to have some inkling of what you're talking about, right? And it it grew its own legs and was like walking around. And so, you know, at the end of the day, when you've got this stuff coming up, it's almost too perfect to me that they sort of put it to bed on this guy who left seminal fluid at the scene, but not in the victim. Right. And it's a mitochondrial DNA match with the Y chromosome to a male uh, relative of his. And, you know, Oh, that means he did it. Right. <laughs> how yeah. did they have it at the scene? Like how had they Preserved it, um, like I have a lot of questions.
0: Yeah, that's what that's what ends up happening for me. Uh, what ends up happening here is I end up in this position where um, I only have questions. I don't really get a lot of answers out of it. Uh, I am recommending uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, the Boston Strang- Boston Strangler. I don't think it's called the Boston Strangler. I think it's called Boston Strangler. It's it's a cool story. I think people will sort of get uh, that weird feeling like maybe we should be asking more questions about things. Um, you know, like before this, we were asking questions about uh, Bobby Long. We have nothing but questions coming up in terms of like what we're going to be asking over the next uh, uh, several episodes and the next cases we cover, right?
1: Right. And, you know, I part of the reason we, you know, have hundred and almost 80, um, episodes of us discussing things as, you know, um, these stories are woven together and they, a lot of them stand the test of time, right? Because, um, anytime you've got somebody doing the work, uh, and then putting a narrative together, um, like I appreciate it on one hand because it gives you something to work with as far as like what happened, Right. But on the other hand, um, a lot of details can be skipped that are actually like really, really important, um, to understanding the case. Right. Um, and so I, I do feel like narratives are awesome, but I also feel like everybody should always be questioning them. Um, and not in the way that like, oh, it's a conspiracy. I feel like like i said earlier the conspiracy like rantings that we sort of hear about um and you know i don't i don't believe in conspiracies at all like that they exist i feel like it's just incompetence like i said earlier but i think that um you know helping people understand the narrative like every single chance you get is really important because you never know when like the next thing in crime is going to be right. Um, While they were living it, the people in Boston, uh, you know, kind of enduring the reign of Boston Strangler, um, they had no idea like what was going to end up happening. And so we can look back on it and say this, that, and the other. Right. And, you know, you, you had mentioned profiling and, it is a really relevant thing, except when it's not, right? And I was trying to th- figure out. It's we had so about,
0: complicated, yeah.
1: Well, I was. We had talked about it um, on a different show recently, and I was thinking to myself, like, okay, so profiling was like some really like expert, you know, people trying to lump things together and sort of give, you know, a kind of skimming the surface explanation for different things to help compartmentalize like you know this serial killer phenomenon right and yeah
0: that's a good way to describe it actually yeah
1: and so you know this is what my brain kind of says to that you know i could say i don't have a whole lot to go off of here but let's say you know let's come up with a profile of a good mom right Okay. And so you would say, well, she would be, you know, old enough to uh, to be mature enough to have kids, but not too old that she can't play with them. And, you know, she would, you know, she would be smart and she would have a good moral compass. And you could say all these things just like they do for the the serial killer's profile, right? Right. And so at the end of the day... You can look at it and you can go, okay, so we're we're gonna have this profile of this good mom, just like they have the profile of the serial killer for you know, a case. Anybody, any female can be a mom, right? You might have missed some of those things. It doesn't mean that the profile doesn't encompass like what a good mother is, right? It just means that there are always things outside of the box that you have to consider. And I think that profiling, um, it was it, It's a way that they simplified it too much, because they had to. Because they had to. Well,
0: I think it's the use of the profiles and the and the publicity of the profiles that was the problem. What they were really doing was they wanted a very simple way to identify a group of suspects and to give like characteristics that that group of suspects might. Have in terms of being a lead generator, it's morphed over the years to the point that it's not really used anymore, because what used to be profiling in some ways is now taught in more ba- not basic law enforcement, but more basic law enforcement than than it, it doesn't have to be just FBI at this point. Uh, unfortunately, that has not translated well in every situation, but you know, generally speaking, I think I think you're right on the compartmentalizing. I think that it was just a lead generator. Um,
1: yeah, and I agree. And you know, in 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 a big way, it, it's almost like it's just common sense. Um, it may not apply to everybody having that in common sense, but right. like when you think about it, you know, it's basically just stating what it it would be clear in most cases, um, and they. I do think a lot of things are missed. Um, not necessarily now, but like when profiling was this huge thing that they made it this huge thing. I do think that like a lot of cases had details that were overlooked that could have possibly solved the case, right? Or solved the case correctly <laughs> um, if they hadn't been so focused on like somebody not fitting the profile, right?
0: Yeah. And we're going to have a chance to talk to some people, um, at least one, maybe two people, where we're going to talk about profiling uh, with, uh, I think it's the next round, it's the next series of cases. So it'll be sometime in early May when that pops up, uh, because I have questions, and I would love to hear from um, uh, an expert. So I'm going to bring somebody in for that. Generally speaking, do you have anything else on the Boston Strangler or on uh, Christina
1: um, Krista,
0: now, sorry.
1: No, I hope uh I hope that um I hope Krista's alive. Um
0: Yeah, me too. I
1: I really have no idea if we'll ever have any sort of resolution to that. If she is alive, right? Uh we would if they found her remains, but that hasn't happened, at least that we are aware of. But um that's such a tragic case to me that, you know, uh she was missing she had died basically right after she was last seen. And, you know, all these years have gone by and this little girl is now, you know, a 30 something year old woman, but I hope the family can get some closure. Uh, and then with the Boston Strangler, like it's just another one of those things that to me, it, it adds on my checklist side of like, why we should continue doing this because it's just another one of the it's it's a case right when it's really not i don't think i think that the dna evidence um if it you know if i could look at all the reports and stuff and you know make some sort of judgment call on it myself because if it's if it truly is his dna found and it's a legitimate situation we should be able to independently see that, right?
0: Yeah, I keep hoping that there's a couple of cases and his is one of them now. Um, It wasn't, so when I watched this movie, I was not as aware as I am now. And there's a little bit of time between now and when the audience hears this, I got really immersed in the Boston Strangler for a little bit of time with a lot of documents. And I can tell you the evidence is there to sort of put all that to bed. If the Boston Police wanted to do that, um, I would love to know, like, if he is linked to more than the than the one crime scene. I would I would feel really good about that.
1: Um, and did the review that you did did it give you any indication if that was a possibility?
0: No, I think so. Okay, and this is not about the Boston Police today. This is about the Boston Police fifty years ago. I don't think the evidence was left in a – I think they were in a hard position dealing with the public and dealing with those crimes and the pressure to solve them, and I don't think we'll ever be able to trust the results of evidence testing from way back when.
1: Well, Um, I've um, been saying that all along. I don't even see how we have – evidence to begin with, really. Um, But we do. And some of it is trustworthy.
0: Yeah. So what happens with the Boston Strangler case for me, and this is my closing comment for me, uh, I believe that the Boston Strangler was just the Strangler among many Stranglers. um, And I believe that we're probably looking at the work of, me personally, I think it's probably three Stranglers and a couple of one-offs that we see in those murders and the murders that are immediately surrounding them. But I think whoever might have been doing the younger victims in the Boston Strangler case, I think they moved on to a new city. Huh. Um, and I don't know about, I think the other Strangler is probably caught in some regard, but I, I do think there are murders after that, that match that jurisdictionally will never be linked because the Boston police department, even looking at the files, you can sort of tell they're pretty close-minded about the whole thing. And that unfortunately was, you know, to protect their integrity. And in hindsight, 50 years later, for me personally, doesn't have to, you know, other people don't have to agree. I think they sort of corrupted their integrity by just closing that case.
1: Well, I I have a tendency to agree because I feel like the questions could have been answered to to one way or the other, right? Like where we wouldn't be having this like account, fictionalized account all these years later saying, you know, hey. Yeah, they just squashed
0: the legend the wrong way. That's all. Uh,
1: You know, I have a tendency to, um, I, I agree.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.